Brothers and sisters, please open with me in God's Word to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, as we continue in this series through the book of Revelation. While you turn there, I thought it might be helpful to reflect for just a moment on something you may have read that has moved you or inspired you. Now, for some, it may be a book that opened up ideas and truths for you to consider. While for others, it may have been a poem that impacted you as you reflected upon its meaning and its significance. Or maybe it's a letter that you received that reminded you of how much someone loves you. You know, words can deeply impact us since they not only communicate information to our minds, but they connect with our very emotions to shape how we live. And this morning, I think we come to what may be the sweetest and most stirring words in all of Scripture. So may they move and inspire us this morning as we consider them here in Revelation 21. So let's read together Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. And he who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Brothers and sisters, let us again return to the throne of God in prayer. Oh, Father, what powerful words you revealed to us here in the Scriptures this morning. And Father, while I cannot hope to give these words justice, oh Lord, I pray that you will so use this message 
to bring these words into the hearts and minds of those who are here. That they will indeed move us and inspire us. with the glory of Christ and all that He will bring with the arrival of a new heaven and a new earth. So Lord, may Your Spirit be powerfully at work here this morning among us so that those who do not have this hope will be saved. And for those of us who do have this hope, oh Lord, may we find the preciousness of the words you have revealed to us here this morning. So Father, please be with me as I preach. May your strength be made manifest so that Christ's name is magnified. Oh, I pray these things then in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Oh, what wonderful words we have here. Brothers and sisters, what we have through these verses is God's promise of a new heaven and a new earth. That God promises us a new heaven and a new earth. Are you looking forward to this eternal inheritance? Because this is how we are to live, as those who are looking forward to the eternal inheritance of a new heaven and a new earth. And this morning we find there are two aspects then of this promise to us. First, of entering God's presence in verses 1 to 4, and second, experiencing God's blessings in verses 5 to 8. So there is the entering God's presence, entering into God's presence in verses 1 to 4, and the, well, the, the, the very experience and enjoyment of God's blessings verses 5 to 8. Let's then consider what it means to enter into God's presence here. Of course, the Apostle John has been recording these symbolic visions of prophecy from God in this book so that Christ's churches will be encouraged as we struggle and suffer in this present evil age. What Revelation goes on to show is that after all of the temptations and the trials and the troubles and the tribulation that we face in this age. That Christ will return to bring an end to the kingdoms of this sin-cursed and corrupt world to establish God's kingdom on the earth. And now that Christ has come to reign, we see that this unholy trinity of the Antichrist and the false prophet and Satan have all been cast into the lake of fire. And all of the dead then have risen from their graves to stand before God at His great white throne judgment where all will be judged according to their works. And it's there that we see that all those who have been saved by Christ and have their name written in the book of life will stand justified 
before God on this coming judgment day. But all unbelievers will stand before God alone, where they will be condemned for their sin. And they too then will be cast into the lake of fire. And it's on this day then that justice will finally and fully come to the people of God when this world comes before the throne of God's judgment. Which then brings us to this chapter. Chapter 21. And as this chapter begins, what does John see next? But a new heaven and a new earth. You see, our hope as Christians is greater than going to heaven when we die. Of course, it is a blessing from God that when we die, we go to be with Him in heaven. But that's not our ultimate hope, is it? No, our hope is greater than going to heaven when we die, but it is enjoying eternal life with resurrected bodies on a restored world. That's what we look forward to. This is what we look forward to. Which is why these verses are filled with God's promises that were given throughout the Old Testament, being fulfilled and coming true. And we would be here the rest of the day to see all of the connections that are made between what God has revealed before of a new heaven and a new earth and what is recorded here in these verses. But I at least want us to see how as we come to a new heaven and a new earth, there is the completion and consummation of everything which God has revealed before. So we're going to turn to a few different passages of Scripture to see this. First, uh, the prophet Isaiah as he prophesies of this new creation that would come when he spoke to God's old covenant people in Isaiah 65, verses 17 and 19. So listen to what Isaiah says there from the Lord. He says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. And then this promise continues at the very end of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 66. We read of the glories to come in verses 22 and 23. We read, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. And this prophesied and promised new heaven and new earth will arrive. After the first heaven, and the first earth pass away. Do you remember how they passed away? We read of it at the end of chapter 20. At the end of chapter 20. Where God appeared on His great white throne for judgment. Because there the 
earth and the heaven fled away from his face. See, all of the unrighteousness and impurity of this world cannot remain before God. And his majestic holiness. Which is why all of creation is waiting for this eternal future to come. As the Apostle Paul records, we'll go to another passage of Scripture. There's so much to consider here, but Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. Listen to what Paul writes of. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. This is what we're hoping for. This is what we are waiting for expectantly. That we are shown that creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty that we receive through Christ's salvation. And in Revelation 21, we also see that in the new heaven and new earth, there will be no more sea. Now, that may seem a little odd to you. What does that mean? Does God have something against water? Well, of course not. We must remember the symbolic meaning of the sea in Revelation and really through the prophecy of Scripture generally. See, the sea is more than a body of water, but it symbolizes evil itself, which is why John sees the Antichrist as a beast rising up out of the sea in chapter 13, verse 1. And why we see the nations opposing and oppressing Christchurch through the great harlot city of Babylon who sits on many waters in chapter 17, verse 1. So what we find is this sea communicates the source of the evil of this world, the source of all our temptation and tribulation which has arisen, arisen through this age. Which is why then when he says there was no more sea, See, there will be no more of this evil. No more temptation, no more tribulation in the world to come. And not even the possibility of, things re- of these things returning in our eternal future. Well, John then sees the coming down of the holy city that descends from heaven to earth, showing the place where we live in this new heaven and new earth. And of course, that city here is called the New Jerusalem. 
when you think of the old Jerusalem, the, the historical Jerusalem that's there in the Middle East, it was the capital city of God's people Israel, which is why the temple was built there for God to be present with them. But this city, it was a shadow or a type that gave Israel a preview of living in God's heavenly presence, which through Scripture is often called Zion. And so in the New Testament, there's a contrast then between Mount Sinai, where God gave Israel his old covenants, and Mount Zion, where God saves his people through his new covenant in Christ. So listen to this contrast in Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 24 where we read, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. That's what happens when you approach God through Mount Sinai. But then verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. And it's this heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, that will come down to earth. That's why Grant Osborne writes, Now the heavenly temple descends from heaven to earth in the form of a city and becomes the eternal home of the saints. But as this holy city descends, it also comes down prepared as a bride. So we find the new Jerusalem here in Revelation representing both a place and a people. It symbolizes God's people and the place of our eternal home. You may remember back in chapter 19 that Christ's church was pictured as his bride, who was arrayed in fine linen, which are the righteous acts of the saints. And now what does John see here? But a holy city, which is also adorned for our husband because we're wearing this beautiful wedding garment to be married to Christ, our Savior. Now, when you think about weddings, consider all of the time and money that we spend preparing a bride for her wedding day. You have the choosing of a gown and the sizing of the gown. There is the makeup and hair that goes on. There's the hiring of a professional photographer to capture the moment. Why? Because on that day, 
We look forward to seeing the bride in all of her beauty as she enters into this covenant relationship with her husband. And the wedding photos then become a reminder of the relationship that this couple now enjoys together. Well, through the infinite blood of Christ that was shed on the cross for us, we are being prepared for our wedding day when we will be seen in all of our beauty and will fully enter into our covenantal relationship with Christ. And God has captured this picture for us here through the holy city as a reminder of the relationship that we will enjoy with Christ forever. So this is what John sees. But then we go from him seeing to him hearing. When he hears from a loud voice in heaven and this angelic voice declares, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Now the tabernacle throughout the Old Testament was the place where God would meet with his people until the temple was built, which was a continuation of God meeting with his people. But listen to the promise that God gave to Israel in the Holiness Code in Leviticus 26, verses 11 and 12. There we read, I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. And this is repeated over and over and over and over again to God's people throughout the Old Testament. I shall be your God and you shall be my people. And then when we turn to the New Testament and Jesus comes into the world, how does the Apostle John, the same Apostle who is receiving this vision, how does he start his Gospel? John 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, the Word is the Son of God who became man in the person of Jesus Christ. And what we see in that verse, when it says he dwelt among us, can literally be translated, he tabernacled among us. So when Christ lived on the earth, See, those who were living were in the very presence of God himself. The God in the flesh. And after Christ died on the cross, was raised from the dead with resurrection life, and ascended to heaven to reign over his kingdom, he then sends his Holy Spirit for God's presence to continue in us. But, as wonderful as the Holy Spirit is in us, His indwelling is not living in the fullness of God's presence, which we look forward to entering into when we are resurrected from the dead and physically enter into a new heaven and a new earth. Then we will be the tabernacle of God. And look at how this tabernacling of God is described here. That he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, which means 
we will always be in the Lord's presence as His people. Forever. And so however close or however far you may feel from God now, however close or however far you may feel as we draw near to God when we're gathered here for worship as a church, this dwelling with God is much closer and more intimate, and it will never end. You know, it's no surprise to me then that John has shown us as this holy city wearing a wedding garment, and then he's told that we will have this eternal relationship of God's presence because marriage is the most intimate relationship that can exist between two people. Which is why marriage in this world is meant to reveal to us the intimacy that we enjoy in God's relationship with us. But what it means here is that we look forward to the time where God himself will be with us and will be our God. See, this is what eternal life will look like. A never-ending life of intimate communion with God, where God will dwell with us in His presence forever. And then we have those beautiful words in verse 4. There will be no more tears from sadness, no more death under the curse of God or as martyrs from our enemies, no more sorrow from loss in this world. Do you see how close we will be to God? He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Oh, what manner of love is this? He will forever free us from suffering in this world as we enter the world to come. And all pain will disappear because these are the hard realities of living in a fallen and sinful world. So why God promises us that these will pass away and not even be a distant memory in our eternal future with Him. Do you see then how these are some of the most beautiful words recorded for us in God's Word. Let us then meditate on them. Meditate on this sure and secure hope that we have in Christ so that the revelation of this world to come will so take hold in our minds and in our hearts that we will yearn for this eternal life in God's presence even as we live in this world waiting for this world to pass away and a new heaven and a new earth to arrive. So there is entering God's presence that we see here through these words. But then second, 
We also read the experiencing of God's blessings in verses 5 to 8. Experiencing God's blessings. And now that John has seen these things and even heard from voice in heaven, God Himself speaks. He speaks from His throne to confirm the blessings that John has just seen. And what is His declaration? Behold, I make all things new. Now, God began making all things new through converting our souls by the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is why the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But this will continue until all of God's chosen people are saved and Christ returns to establish God's kingdom on the earth, and creation itself then will be made new. How do we know all of this is true? After all of the years and the centuries continue, we know it's true because God gave these words for John to write down for us. Which is why he tells John to write for these words are true and faithful. So people may doubt or even deny that God will bring this world to an end. Or that He'll begin a new world to come. But this will not change the certainty of His promise, which is written down for us here. And this is why then we can trust in the Scriptures. Because these are far more than the words written by men centuries ago. But they are the very Word of God recorded by men for us to endure to the end so that we will experience the blessings of eternity. And then God states, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now, we've heard this before, right? Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. But this title of God means that He is in control of everything from the beginning to the end. Do you see then how He is sovereign over all of human history and that all of human history is moving forward towards this glorious goal? of a new heaven and a new earth. Because God is eternal and the very creator of time itself. And while what He has revealed to us here may be in our future, God announces the completion of world history here, since He is our God who has established the beginning and the end of His creation. This is why this title for God really form bookends to the book of Revelation. It's how Revelation begins, and it's how Revelation ends. Back in chapter 1, verse 8, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And now, as we come to the end of Revelation, what do we see? It's repeated once more. So God controls the beginning and the end of creation as well as everything that happens in between. 
And all that takes place in this world is moving towards this glorious goal which He has established for us. And oh, don't miss, don't miss what He offers to us. Because God says, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Frankly, I could take up an entire sermon with these words by themselves. They're so rich and powerful in meaning. You know, unlike those vain attempts to search for the mythical fountain of youth, like Ponce de Leon once did, which was and continued to be destined for failure in this world. This fountain of water of life symbolizes the very real and the very eternal refreshment that we will receive through Christ when He gives us life to live with Him forevermore. So this is an eternal life of joy It is found in Christ and freely offered to all who thirst. Because He is not stingy with this grace. But He's willing for all who desire it to find their life and the rejuvenation of themselves in Him. And it's when we thirst and we receive this grace from Christ that we will persevere in the faith through the pains and the persecution of this age. That's why we will then overcome this world through the strength that He gives us in the Holy Spirit. Which is why we here look forward to inheriting all things, which includes all of the blessings that have been promised here through the book of Revelation. Now, when I think of an inheritance, frankly, I wonder about my own. You know, I've never seen the will of my parents, if they have a will. I have no idea whether I'll receive anything from them when they die. But whatever I may receive from my earthly father as an inheritance, it will not compare to the inheritance that I will receive from my heavenly father. And I don't have to wonder what this inheritance will be, do I? Since it has been recorded for me in God's Word. But do you know what the greatest blessing that is promised from God is recorded for us? What it says, it's recorded for us here in this verse. Verse 7. This is the greatest blessing that we are promised. And God says... That I will be his God, and he shall be my son. It is this eternal relationship with God. Do you hear how personal this promise is? God speaks in the first person I will be his God. And he shall be my son. Now, there is a sense in which we are already God's eternally 
right? We already belong to God since he chose us as his own before the foundation of the world. And there's another sense in which he becomes our God when he converts our souls through the receiving of of the gospel of Christ by faith. But here we come to yet another sense in which he will one day be our God and we will belong to him in our coming eternal future with him. And when this time comes, each of us in Christ will be God's son. Now, we all recognize that Christ alone is God's son as the second person of the Trinity, right? That God eternally exists as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we will not somehow enter into this Trinitarian godness. But through Christ, we will become sons of God as we enjoy the fullness of the relationship which we will have with him as our Father. Because God promises that our adoption as his children will be complete. A new heaven and a new earth. But there is a contrast in these verses between the conquerors and the cowards. Between those who overcome this world through their faith in Christ and those who cowardly comply with this world and compromise their faith in Christ, which confronts each of us with the question, which are you? A conqueror or a coward? Because God warns that there are many who will not experience these blessings from God, including those, some of those who claim to be Christians among the churches who will receive this letter. Which is why they're Sins, then, are listed here in verse 8. And look at this list. That behind their cowardice is unbelief, which then leads to the rest of these sins being carried out. So John here brings the sins that have been warned against throughout Revelation to show what will happen to those who surrender to their sinfulness. See, without the forgiveness and the cleansing of Christ's blood poured out on the cross for our sins, we will not be reconciled with God and we will not persevere in faith through the struggles and suffering of this world. Which means that we will not receive these promised blessings from Him. And it means that you will remain under the wrath of God for your sin and shall have your part in the lake of fire. If you're condemned to an eternal conscious torment in this place that burns with fire and brimstone. And as we've seen before, this is the second death. Now we all die in the first death. The first death is a reality of living in this world under the curse of sin where our bodies return to the ground. But this second death is infinitely worse because it is when the body and soul are tormented in hell forever under the wrath of God. 
So let us all ask ourselves, let's take a moment and ask ourselves, am I thirsty for the fountain, the water of life? Or am I drinking in the world's polluted and poisonous wine of the wrath of God? As Revelation has warned us about repeatedly, there's only one drink that can satisfy us and give us joy. And it is freely given to us through Christ, who is the fountain of living waters, who has offered himself in our place through his death on the cross to drink up the fullness of the wine of the wrath of God so that we then have the clear and clean water his grace and salvation. Oh, if you have not drank at the fount of living water in Jesus Christ, thirst, as you, as, as, as you sense how this is the only way that your thirst will be satisfied, repent of your sins, turning away from your rebellion against God receive Christ as your Savior, as the one who will continue to fill you freely with the water of life. You know, as you consider all of these wonderful blessings that God promises us here in Christ, compare what this world offers to us through its temporary pleasures. What a perspective for us to have as we live in this world. May we then always keep in our minds and hearts our eternal future with God as our Father, living in His presence with the blessings that we will experience as His precious adopted children. This is what God promises us a new heaven, a new earth. So are you looking forward to this eternal inheritance? You know, as I was meditating on these words and reflecting on them, what became most powerful to me again were, were, was what we have in verse 4, the words of verse 4. Where again we read, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And I was thinking back to the early days of my daughter as she was suffering from leukemia. And she was in the hospital, laying on a bed in so much pain. And I would sit by her bedside, ask her father. And tears would start to come down her face. And I'd seek to wipe her tears. To show her I love her and I care for her. 
we read here is that God will do this. God, our Father, will wipe away every tear. It's like His hand will come across our cheeks because He knows of our pain. He knows of all we have gone through and He wipes them away. His love for us. You know, the difference between me as my daughter's father and God as our father is I could not wipe all my daughter's tears away. I could not remove the pain she was going through. I could not restore her to health. Because this, this is the suffering that we experience in this fallen and sinful world. Do you see how how glorious it is we have a Father who is in control and who not only can wipe away the tears from our eyes but can actually remove the pain, can end the suffering, can end all the diseases and the dangers and death itself. This is our Father in heaven who promises us a new heaven and a new earth. May we long for our eternal home with Him. Let us pray. Oh, Father. Who is worthy to read these words? To have this promise freely given to us as our eternal inheritance. Oh Lord, may we drink from the fountain of the water of life freely as those who thirst. And may we live in this world yearning for the coming of a new heaven and a new earth so that however hard things may become, we will have Christ. We will be saved. And we will enter into your presence to experience your blessings. Oh, Father, we pray then for all of these glorious things. In Jesus' name, amen.